Many religions, especially monotheistic ones, have an idea of an adversary of some type or another. For the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that adversary is the devil, or Satan. Once, according to Christian mythology, the most beautiful of all of God's angels, who was offended by the creation of man, and so rebelled against God. For his sins, he was cast out. And yet, weirdly, he gets to be in charge of the earth, where he lives, in the center. And he and God seem to have a real give-and-take kind of a relationship. It's all very confusing for those of us who do not subscribe to this mythology. But a lot of people do. For some reason, it's hard to pinpoint down exact numbers, but a few years ago, it was estimated about 65% of Americans identify themselves as Christian, being that Catholic, one of the several versions of Orthodox Christianity, or the hundreds of Protestant groups. However, a 2020 study by Dr. George Barna said that just over half of American adults, 51%, have a traditional biblical view of God as this all-powerful, all-knowing creator. However, 56% believe in Satan. That's right, more Americans believe in Satan than believe in God. A good portion of those are evangelical and born-again Christian types, with well over 85% of them absolutely believing in the actual physical existence of the adversary. So, it should come as no surprise that when things started getting weird in the 1960s, that some of these people looking around themselves and seeing the country start to change in ways that they were very uncomfortable with would immediately blame things on Satan and his followers. And so we come to the U.S. Satanic Panic of the 1980s in this episode, Really Really Stranger Stranger Things. Things. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast. And if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to... The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Sympathy for the Devil. A 1968 song by the Rolling Stones, a musical group who would have to fend off rumors of satanic involvement all through the 1970s. Devil stuff was all over the place in pop culture in the 1970s due to a number of entertainment and real-life things that happened in quick succession. Ira Levin's 1967 novel Rosemary's Baby came out, a book which many think sort of opened the creaky door for modern horror, allowing the likes of Stephen King and Peter Straub to slither through. 
and this was one of the three books that critics say started the, quote, horror boom. It was turned into a very successful movie by Roman Polanski the following year. The Zodiac Killer was stalking the San Francisco Bay Area in 1968-1969. The Manson family cult-slash-gang committed their atrocities, including murdering Polanski's wife and unborn child on August 6, 1969, followed by another murder the following night, and one of those victims was named Rosemary. Anton LaVey, who'd founded the Church of Satan in 1966, published the Satanic Bible also in 1969. Starting in 1970, a string of 15 racially motivated murders, though it may have been as many as 73, by a group of four serial killers called the Zebra Murders also went on in the San Francisco area for four years. All this during a time of upheaval in the status quo of what you might call normal or square society. The summer of love, recreational drugs, draft dodging, communes, women's lib, racial integration, and also man landed landed on the freaking freaking moon, moon. all while a very unpopular war raged in Southeast Asia and many younger Americans had had enough. And when societal stresses increase, some people get some kooky ideas. Charles Manson himself said he thought he was Jesus and the Zodiac said that he was in league with the devil. Also in the late 60s, the 30-year conflict in Belfast, Northern Ireland, known as the Troubles, kicked off, ultimately resulting in 3,500 deaths, over half of whom were civilians. About 80 IRA bombings just during the 1970s was part of the Troubles, but overall there would be more than 10,000 bombings between 1968 and 1998. William Peter Blatty's 1971 book, The Exorcist, and Thomas Tyron's The Other were published. These would also be turned into films. The Exorcist, written by Blatty himself for the 1973 film directed by Hollywood upstart William Friedkin, a film that popularized the offbeat board game of the Ouija board which many people swore it really did work. In Chicago in 1972, a political guy and part-time clown named John Wayne Gacy would kill his first victim, ending only with his arrest almost five years later with 33 victims buried in his basement. From 1971 to 1973, three young girls between 10 and 11 years old in Rochester, New York, were strangled in what seemed a ritualistic way in what came to be known as the Alphabet Murders. 1972 also saw the publication of a book titled Satan Seller, a memoir by a Christian evangelical named Mike Warnke, who claimed he'd been raised in a cult that worshipped the devil, eventually becoming the cult leader and participating in ritualistic sex orgies. This was all before he found Jesus and converted to Christianity, of course. 20 years later, this book would turn out to be a total fabrication, but back then, people thought it was about real events, and, well, mm, it kind of sounded like the Mansons and kind of sounded like Rosemary's Baby, and it freaked them out. Anton LaVey's book, Satanic Rituals, also published since 1972, further fanned the flames. That same year, a British academic published a study titled Folk Devils and Moral Panics, which is where the term moral panic comes from, which traced such freakouts throughout Western history whenever some portion of the population felt threatened by changes to their society, fanned by media sensationalism. As the talking heads would say nine years later, same as it ever was. But more madness was waiting down the road. Ted Bundy, a successful law student in Florida, began murdering women in 1975, finally getting caught in 1978 after killing 35. 
Watergate eroded trust in the establishment even further. Heavy metal rock bands started adopting certain demonic symbols as a way of showing their disaffection with the status quo. Stephen King published his debut novel Carrie in 1974, which was a big hit, and Ronald Clark O'Brien, known as the Candyman, poisoned his eight-year-old son with poisoned Halloween candy in order to get a life insurance payout in the only actual case of Halloween poisoning ever in the United States, though the crime was seen so shocking at the time that every year the media and some other people whip up the fear that such things are commonplace and happen annually. 1975's Jaws would make people afraid to go in the water, sometimes forever, directed by Steven Spielberg, who would go on to help define the 1980s movie landscape and who back in 1970 had directed the pilot episode of Rod Serling's TV show Night Gallery, sort of a follow-up to The Twilight Zone, and then Duel in 1971, a strangely effective television movie about a man terrorized on the road in the California desert by a truck driver for no apparent reason reason this movie tapped into people's fears that things were out of control and didn't make sense in the summer of 1976 new yorker david berkowitz better known as the son of sam had distinctly satanic motifs in his ramblings going so far as to claim that he had been part of a satanic cult starting in 1975 the media really had a field day with the Son of Sam case, pumping up the worry and fear. And I don't think you can underestimate just how much the Son of Sam freaked out New Yorkers. One of the box office hits of the summer of 1976 was the Richard Donner-helmed movie The Omen about the Son of Satan, born at last on the earth, who would grow up to become the Antichrist. The Hillside Strangler, or Stranglers possibly, murdered women in the hills above Los Angeles in 1977 and 78, and Jim Jones convinced members of his cult to commit mass suicide in South America in 1978. That same year, John Carpenter would make babysitting weird forever with his first horror outing, Halloween. Punk rock would take off in the late 70s, which was a movement so disillusioned with the way things were, they didn't even care if they could actually play their instruments or sing. Also throughout the 1970s, several self-proclaimed former Satanists told salacious tales of blood rituals and human sacrifice, which the news media reported with scare headlines. People like Herschel Smith, who had a car he called the Witchmobile a sort of occult museum on wheels, he would drive to various Christian tent revival meetings to warn people of the dangers surrounding them on all sides. And John Todd, who claimed he had been born into a, quote, witchcraft family, and he spread a number of conspiracy theories, often lifted directly from the pages of those small cartoon pamphlets published by Chick Publications. Jack Chick was a friend of his. All about the hidden agenda behind the Catholics, who actually work for the devil, the Illuminati, Christian rock music, and the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. Todd told people he was a former Green Beret who'd fought in Vietnam, even though his army papers say he was a typist who did not go overseas, and he wrote several books, including How to Build an Ark, as in Noah's Ark, and he said JFK was still alive, and back when he'd been a Satanist, he said he had been Kennedy's personal warlock. He would later be convicted of rape and child molestation, sentenced to 30 years, of which he served 16, and then he went into a mental institution where he died three years later. As the decade closed out, special effects for movies and the rise of science fiction films like Star Wars and Close Encounters, which itself has some good conspiracy stuff in it, culminate in Ridley Scott's 1979 sci-fi horror film Alien, 
which is usually at the top of the scariest movies ever list, along with The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby. So, as the 70s turned into the 80s, the U.S. was in a very particular mindset, encouraged by all these events and rumors like that Led Zeppelin drummer John Bonham had died because of a satanic curse, a story that survived in certain circles well into the new decade. And then more rumors cropped up that the reason Jimmy Page and Robert Plant had split was all due to their attitudes towards Satanism. This was a cultural headspace and zeitgeist that would be ripe for being infected with a meta-conspiracy theory that had the added boost of being mainly directed at people's children. Tainted, Tainted Love a 1981 song by Soft Cell. Culturally, the 80s started off with what seemed at the time like pretty realistic slasher movies and then summer blockbuster movies filled with other worlds and special effects. Many former hippies either vanished into the woods to make hemp butter and weave their own clothes or they went into the corporate world in Wall Street where they made boatloads of money. Under Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher's all-seeing eyes, greed became good Gordon Gecko style and even David Bowie appeared to be selling out. Crime skyrocketed, and whole sections of large cities were essentially abandoned to become chaotic, free-for-all zones of despair, and the wealth gap widened considerably. At the decade's start in 1980, a book came out called Michelle Remembers, an autobiography written by a Canadian woman, Michelle Smith, and her psychiatrist husband, Lawrence Pazder. She'd been his patient in the 1970s, and he'd used hypnosis to, quote, recover memories from her childhood going all the way back to the 1950s. She now remembered being forced, when she was a child of five years old, to attend rituals in the Church of Satan, which she said was an international organization older than Christianity itself. She was caged, physically and sexually abused, witnessed human sacrifices, was rubbed with severed human body parts, including those of murdered babies. This all built up to a massive 81-day-long satanic ritual in which Satan himself was summoned. However, Jesus, Mary, and the archangel Michael appeared as well to save the hapless girl and heal the terrible wounds inflicted upon her tiny body. Well, now that is quite a story, and while some publications like People Magazine were happy to take it at face value, Others did a little digging. Many of the details could not be corroborated, like that cult members had to donate a finger Yakuza style and yet no one seen in the Victoria, Canada area was missing any fingers. Plus, the whole reverted memories therapy thing was a questionable practice at best. Yet the now married couple, yes, he married his patient, which should tell you something about his ethics, they made some good bank on the book and even went to the Vatican to warn them about satanic cults that target children. And Pazder would go on to become a so-called expert in, quote, ritual abuse, a term he coined. The book Michelle Remembers was used as a training manual for social workers in Kern County, California, where Bakersfield is located. Mary Ann Barber coached her two granddaughters, who she had custody of, into saying that they had been abused by their parents, who were in turn part of a sex ring with satanic overtones. The sons of two people alleged to have been part of that sex ring, Scott and Brenda Niffen, also claimed that they had been victims. Though the prosecution had no physical evidence, the Niffins were convicted and sentenced to a combined 1,000 years, more than for rape and more than for murder. 
Their case was overturned in 1996, and they were eventually released. Child witnesses from the case were used to prosecute further people, such as John Stoll, who was sentenced to 40 years. In 2004, one of the witnesses who convicted Stoll told the New York Times that he and the other four boys had lied. Stoll was immediately released and sued the county, getting a $5 million settlement. Kern County ended up having to pay out another $10 million in damages for child abuse convictions from the 80s that later got overturned. In fact, it would seem the only actual pedophile around there at the time was Grant Self, a man who had been living in Stoll's pool house. He'd had two prior convictions, and when that was discovered, he was remanded to a mental institution specializing in his problem. After his release in 2009, he reoffended in 2015 and got five years in prison. Five years, not 40, not a thousand. Lawrence Pazder was also called in as an expert witness in the McMartin preschool trial. This started in 1983 when one of the students there complained to his mother, Judy Johnson, about painful bowel movements. Hey, we've all eaten too much bread. But somehow, she reached the conclusion that the boy had been sodomized by her estranged husband, as well as a teacher at the preschool, Ray Bucky. Miss Johnson reported this to the police, and there's some confusion in the record as to whether the boy backed her up or not, but then she started flinging around more claims, like workers at the daycare center had sex with animals, which she wrote about in a letter to the district attorney. Her claims started getting weirder and more incoherent, like some sort of a ritual communion taking place involving throwing a goat down some stairs and poking a baby on an altar surrounded by black candles and then decapitating that baby and burning her brains. About children being buried alive in coffins. About children being forced to receive enemas, stapling children's ears, tongue, and nipples. Children's being stabbed in the eyes with scissors. Something about a train. Something about an elephant and a lion playing. But then one of the animals, quote, squirted H2O. But then the lion hurt a child. And then there were magical acts. There was, quote, drilling a female child in the armpits, whatever that means. And that Ray Bucky, the teacher at the school, had been seen flying through the air. The police made inquiries but found, of course, no evidence for even the more rational claims. Yet they also sent a form letter to 200 parents with children at McMartin telling them that they were looking into abuse allegations specifically about Ray Bucky and would they ask their children about it. However, despite naming Bucky outright, they ended the letter with a notice that all information is confidential and so far they had not found any evidence of any criminal acts occurring at McMartin. The Children's Institute International, CII, talked to 400 children using highly leading language and asked the children to speculate as to what may or may not have happened. After several months of this completely unprofessional process, they concluded 360 of the 400 children had been abused at the hands of the McMartin staff. The institute was run by Key McFarlane, who developed using hand puppets and the anatomical show-me-on-the-doll-where-somebody-touched-you technique, first used in this case. Ms. McFarlane was dating Wayne Satz, a news anchor for KABC-TV. He would go on to be the first television news personality to publicize the abuse allegations, something that caused more than a few eyebrows to be raised. The interview sessions were recorded and it was determined that the leading nature of the questioning made most of the allegations impossible to corroborate. One child identified action star Chuck Norris as one of the abusers when shown some photographs, but it later turned out he just really liked Chuck Norris. 
Other children confirmed, yes, they've been taken into a series of underground tunnels where terrible things have been done to them, and yet there were no tunnels beneath the preschool. Accusations of ritual abuse at car washes and airports, very public places, could not be verified and claims that the children were sometimes flushed down toilets to land in underground layers was clearly not something to be seriously entertained. Judy Johnson, the mother who had started it all, was diagnosed with acute paranoid schizophrenia just before the first hearing, as well as chronic alcoholism, but both those pieces of information were withheld by the prosecution. Miss McFarlane of the CII, however, was convinced that Johnson's illness didn't matter and that what she had got the children to tell her was the truth. Her boyfriend, the news anchor, had parents on his news program saying whatever they thought with no experts to balance out his so-called reporting. She even brought in supposed ritual abuse experts Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pazder to interview the children and they certainly further influenced the youngsters' minds. Judy Johnson died before the end of the first hearing having drunk herself to death. Weirdly, the DA kept pressing ahead with this case, despite all of the problems with it. Several people quit in protest to the withholding of key evidence, use of suspect so-called experts, leading questions with children, and so on. The whole case seemed to be based on some kind of unfounded belief in a few people kicked off by a mentally ill woman's delusions. And the case went on for many, many years. An informant in jail claimed that Ray Bucky, who remained incarcerated until matters could be resolved, had confessed all of his crimes to him, but then it later came out that this man was well known for fabricating jailhouse confessions to the police in order to get time taken off his own sentence. In 1990, Bucky's wife Peggy was acquitted on all counts, and Ray was cleared of 52 of the 61 counts he had been charged with. After five years in jail, he was released on bail. Nine of the 11 jurors had wanted full acquittal, but there had been two holdouts. A second trial convened for the remaining six counts, but a hung jury ended with no convictions. After a total of seven years and a cost of $15 million to the state, in the longest-running and most expensive criminal case in U.S. history at the time, the DA finally gave up. Yet, thanks to the often hysterical media coverage, the McMartin Preschool had to shut its doors permanently and the building was torn down. One result of these events was that funding for researching child abuse went way up. The National Center on Child Abuse saw their budget jump from $1.8 million in 1983 to $7.2 million in 84 and up to $15 million in 85. And of course, there are some who still darkly maintain that ritual satanic abuse did occur, there really were underground tunnels at the site, and more. When news anchor Wayne Satz died of a heart attack in 1992 at only age 47, some said he had been killed by the satanic cabal in order to silence him. Also, Judy Johnson had also been killed. In a later case, Judge Antonine Scalia would say that he was sure some form of abuse had occurred at the time, but maybe not as widespread as the DA had thought. Another byproduct of this whole affair was that several parents of children at the preschool suddenly confessed to abusing their children themselves. They were given immunity and mandated therapy in exchange for their confessions, which the DA thought circumstantially strengthened the case. 
Six parents had their children permanently removed from their care. While none of these instances involved satanic rituals in tunnels or drilling armpits or animals squirting water or flying, they do seem to have been actual cases of abuse brought to light by the pressures of the case against the preschool. After this, there would be numerous cases of abuse charges leveled against daycare centers and preschools around the country, many times with the added bonus of it being satanic and ritual in nature. In almost all the cases, convictions based primarily or solely on the coached testimony of children, often by adults who had very firm beliefs about a nationwide satanic ritual child abuse cult, or by people who read books like Michelle Remembers, all these convictions would eventually get overturned. There were so many similar cases that scholars began to examine them, likening them to the Salem Witch Trials, a combination of personal animus and groupthink hysteria with children the unwitting pawns in a strange game between citizens, law enforcement, and the media. In addition to helping arrange the greatest redistribution of wealth in the United States since FDR and the New Deal, Ronald Reagan gave Christian evangelicals something they'd been wanting for a very long time, real access to the corridors of power. Fundamentalists like Jerry Falwell were on the rise with record donations and the ear of the president. And they had their wish lists like outlawing abortion, making sure the LGBTQ community gained no further rights, bad-mouthing feminism as the cause of the breakup of the nuclear family, and so on and so forth. Oh, and speaking of nuclear, don't forget there was the constant threat of an atomic war that would essentially wipe out all life on the planet, a possibility that seemed to grow closer every day as the U.S. spent more and more money on its arsenal and the USSR went through Andropov and Chernenko as leaders in just three years. And for some evangelicals, this was all signs of the end times, the apocalypse predicted in the book of Revelation that would result in the final triumph of the Christians over the devil and everybody else. But first, there had to be an antichrist and a whole bunch of tribulation. Ronald Reagan himself once said in an interview he thought that the generations alive at the time would see the apocalypse. The clock was ticking and there wasn't maybe a ton of time to get folks good and godly enough to deserve salvation. The cultural, the cultural wars, wars, wars were on. Were on. When AIDS started showing up in the 1980s, hardcore Christians reveled that their God was punishing those bad homosexuals and there seemed to be a lack of will and funding in discovering what the actual cause of the disease was. The 1982 Tylenol murders freaked people out, leading to those annoying child-proof caps on everything. In fact, children would increasingly become the excuse for this action or that one. African-American music was coming into the mainstream, mainly rap born of the indignities of the streets, and this made a lot of, let's face it, white people distinctly uncomfortable. Groups like Public Enemy made no secret of the fact that they, as black people in America, were just about fed up with the status quo, purposely dressing in ways designed to feel menacing to suburbanites. The irreverence of the 1970s started giving way to more in-your-face art, with song lyrics increasingly vulgar, let's say, and sexually suggestive, this all led Tipper Gore to help found the Parents Music Resource Center, which would get rating labels attached to music. 
The PG-13 rating was developed for films after an outcry from 1982's Poltergeist and the films Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gremlins, both from 1984, and all three of these mainly the work of Steven Spielberg. We can't expose the children to these sorts of things without extra knowledge, said the concerned parents. The first two films to get the new PG-13 rating were Red Dawn and Dreamscape, both released in the second week of August 1984. Personal computers started showing up in homes, and the increasing miniaturization of technology meant telephones didn't even need cords anymore, and you could listen to your backmasked satanic music wherever you went on a Walkman or a boombox, provided you had enough batteries. Music, movies, clothing, it was all open to debate, as hardline Christians found much to disapprove of. Even games. Richmond, Virginia mother Patricia Pulling thought her son Irving had shot himself in the chest in 1982 because of evil influences from the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. She tried to sue Robert Bracey, the principal at her son's school, for introducing the boy to the game and also said Bracey had put a, quote, D&D curse on her son, which is what drove him to suicide. She also tried to sue TSR, the company that made the game. When neither of those tactics yielded any results, she formed Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, or BAD, a play on MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, which had been founded three years earlier in 1980. Ms. Pulling filed plenty more lawsuits and started printing up materials and giving talks about the evils of the game. As time went on and her audience grew, her claims got more and more outrageous. She described Dungeons and Dragons as, quote, a fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic-type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divinitation, and other teachings. <laughs> Boy, none of that happened on any of the campaigns I played. I guess I was a pretty tame dungeon master. Well, the press liked her because she was extreme. And extreme sells newspapers and magazines and puts eyeballs on TV screens. And while her many lawsuits all failed, her star continued to rise. She got herself a private investigator's license and then consulted on criminal cases, sometimes being called into court as an expert witness in lawsuits involving games. In 1984, she became the director of the National Coalition on TV Violence, because apparently that was also a problem she felt needed to be addressed. And she continued to beat the Satanist drums, saying things like 8% of all Virginia residents were Satanists. And she got that by assuming 4% of all adults and 4% of all teenagers and 4 plus 4 is 8%. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Patricia, Patricia, that's not that's how, not that, how works. that works. There was so much hoopla about D&D by mid-decade that 60 Minutes decided to do a segment on it in 1985. The game's creator, Gary Gygax, was interviewed, but so was Patricia Pulling. In 1989, she would co-write a book called The Devil's Web, Who Is Stalking Your Children for Satan? The book The Devil's Web warned parents to be on the lookout for copies of the Necronomicon. 
Interestingly, it was mainly Dungeons and Dragons that took the heat, though there were plenty more role-playing games showing up in the 70s and 80s, like Gamma World set in a post-nuclear apocalypse Earth, Traveler, a space-hopping science fiction game, and Call of Cthulhu, a horror game based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft in which your character can go insane simply by looking at a monster. I'm surprised Pulling hadn't heard of that one. That would seem like a natural fit. But no, it was D&D that she didn't like. Thanks to all the ruckus made by Pulling and others, amplified by a new system that thrives on conflict, real or imagined, now the truly God-fearing knew about the dangers so their children should be denied such wanton pursuits. Of course, children in fundamentalist households already didn't get to have much fun until Aren McCormick showed up. Yes, that is a footloose reference. But sometimes ringing the alarm bell simply makes people get up to go look at the fire. Ironically, all the publicity from a woman who was trying to spread the word about this evil game actually just increased D&D sales. Running in the Shadows Damn your love, damn your lies. That's a line from the 1977 Fleetwood Mac song, The Chain, on the album Rumors. In 1978, a woman in Ohio wrote a letter to fast food giant McDonald's asking why they donated 20% of their profits to the Church of Satan. No surprise, they ignored this as a crank letter from a kook. But then more letters came in from all over the country asking the same thing, dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of them. What in the name of the Hamburglar was going on here? It turns out a member of the Church of God congregation in Akron, Ohio, had told her reverend, John McFarlane, that she had seen McDonald's founder, Ray Kroc, admit on the Phil Donahue show to donating to several charities, among them Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. McFarlane promptly sounded the alarm of the church newsletter and people started taking it as, well, as faith. With some saying Mickey D's gave a fifth of their money to Satan, while others saying, no, no, it's 30%, 40%, 50%. Yeah, what was on Phil Donahue? No, it was on The Tonight Show. No, it was on 60 Minutes. Croc had been on Donahue in 1977, and that episode had been rebroadcast in June 1978, but at no point had he ever said anything about religion or Satan. Yet McDonald saw sales fall, Kids quit McDonald's-sponsored Little League teams, and newsletters among Christians started circulating about a full-on boycott. So finally, they issued a press release in October saying, no, this is just not true. The CEO even talked to a meeting of 75 Baptist ministers in Birmingham to quash the rumor. The Golden Arches even considered doing an ad campaign to put paid to the rumors, but then decided that would probably backfire on them by actually promoting it further. McFarland felt embarrassed and issued an apology in the next church newsletter. He should have checked his facts before going on a smear campaign instead of just taking one person's word for it. In an eerie echo of the Ronald McDonald as a slut for Satan rumors, a similar one started showing up in the 1980s about Procter & Gamble. 
Jim Peters, music director of the Zion Christian Life Center in St. Paul, Minnesota, decided he wanted to preach instead of just sing and started giving sermons on what he'd found in the Procter & Gamble logo, a crescent moon with a human face looking at 13 stars. He'd seen this image in a book called Amulets and Superstitions by famed Egyptologist E.A. Wallace Budge. And so, he reasoned, since their logo goes all the way back to ancient Egypt which is before Christ, it must be being being used used today today to honor honor the fallen fallen angel of Christianity himself. That's a bit of a leap there, but hey, this is not a reasonable guy. He'd had a big part in organizing burnings of rock and roll records and cassette tapes back in 1978, and his brothers also thought rock music was evil, especially Kiss, The Beatles, and Elton John. And the brothers all made two documentaries, quote-unquote, about this. This notion made the rounds of the Christian revival world as the three brothers went on a tour, spreading the word to thousands about the evils of rock music, saying things like, quote, Knowing that the lifestyles, lyrics, intentions, and album covers of many of the rock stars are perverse, immoral, profane, and unscriptural, and that they often condone and or promote indulgence in the same, we rid our lives tonight, and then the fire would begin. So Peter's now focused on Procter & Gamble instead of rock and roll. A spokesperson for P&G explained in a 1980 article in the Minneapolis Tribune that the local had originated back in the 1860s, trademarked in 1882, and the current version was made in 1930. The moon was because originally they had made star candles and the 13 stars represented the original 13 American collies, you know, like on the Betsy Ross flag. And that would seem to be that. But then more stories started showing up in 1980 with even more details about the satanic symbolism encoded in the logo. Why, the moon has two horns, just Just like like Satan Satan has. The man in the moon's beard has curls that if you look closely... Represent the number six 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 six. The stars thirteen. Remember the number of death can be arranged into three different patterns, all three of which reveal the number six six six. Clearly, they're encoding the number of the beast into this innocent-seeming logo because they are Satanists. The company started getting thousands, yes, thousands of phone calls complaining, threatening, and trying to save their souls, and even a weatherman in Atlanta, Georgia, spread the rumor one night on television. P&G set up a toll-free telephone number just to handle the sheer volume of calls, with over 15,000 being received in a two-month period. Weirdly, most of the calls came from New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, even though an internal investigation seemed to indicate this time it had all started on the West Coast. This latest version of the P&G rumor merged with the McDonald's one, with people saying that they had heard the CEO of Procter & Gamble admit to supporting the Church of Satan on the Phil Donahue show, or maybe it was the Merv Griffin show, or maybe the Tonight Show. And anyway, since none of it was true, it didn't really matter to the people who were pushing this or that narrative. Once again, P&G denied the whole thing, and it all died down by the end of the year. And then it showed up again in 1985, this time on a leaflet being handed out on the streets of New York City. In a P&G Satan Rumor Roundup article, the Washington Post talked with a man from Minnesota who said he had been at a meeting of the three Peters brothers in 1985 and that they had talked about the logo and how it was so satanic. So it would seem they were behind it all still. 
Hoping to finally kill this nonsense, in April 1985, the company said they were just going to drop the logo. But weirdly, that just fanned the flames. Ho, 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 now they're trying to hide it. And so the rumors kept spreading and growing. And yet the chatter went on. In 1990, Procter & Gamble discovered that four distributors from one of their main competitors, Amway, had been sending voicemails to people telling them that Procter & Gamble was supporting the Church of Satan with their profits. Amway was ordered to stop, but then they started up the smear campaign again, and in 1995 were once again found out. This time, P&G initiated a civil lawsuit that would take until 2007 to conclude. The defendants tried to apologize, but P&G pursued it just the same and ended up winning a $19.5 million settlement from Amway. In 2013, the company said, ha, we're going to bring back the Moon and Stars logo, and then they chickened out at the last minute with a new logo that has kind of a crescent moon, but no bearded face and no stars. And yet there are still some people in the United States as recently as 2017 that say they believe that Procter & Gamble supports the Church of Satan. Nearly 40 years of persistent, if inconsistent, rumors seem to have made the charges stick, at least for some people. Throughout the whole decade, aspersions of Satanism would flourish throughout the country, egged on by the media and a segment of society that wanted things to appear so dire as to spark action for their causes. Straight, Straight to, hell. to hell. A song by The Clash on their 1982 album, Combat Rock. I mean, the media just ate this stuff up, to say the least. Whenever there was a murder or a suicide, especially if it involved younger people, one of the first questions editors and station chiefs asked was, is there a Satanism angle? After all, that whole Son of Sam thing had sold a ton of newspapers, and Lucifer, well, he just seemed like the gift that kept on giving as true believers bought papers and magazines and watched news stories about all the horror, convinced Satan was using earthly pawns for a dire end game in the run-up to the apocalypse, while non-believers did the same thing, except to shake their heads in dismay. Hey, sales are sales. One-time real journalist turned television tabloidist Geraldo Rivera needed a win after his disastrous 1986 live TV special, The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults. If you don't know that story, look it up because it is equal parts pathetic and funny. So in 1988, he jumped on the Lucifer bandwagon with Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground. This time he was gonna get it right. It's a real piece of high schlock with scary background music and the G-Man in fine form strutting about energetically concerned about something that may or may not actually be happening. It's aimed squarely at people who do believe this stuff while all the time pretending to be objective. Yet the subjectivity is apparent in what Rivera chooses to focus on and link to, specifically various high-profile crimes and heavy metal music, of course. This documentary takes it as a fact that Satanism is rife throughout parts of the American subcultural landscape and even suggests that Satanic material should get warning labels like movies or now records thanks to Tipper Gore. But instead of looking at a generation of people who felt so overwhelmed by how screwed up the status quo was and a growing mental health problem in the country, instead, the documentary says the music your kids are listening to will drive them into the clawed clutches of the Dark Lord. 
By doing so, it also seems to suggest that many of the ills of society would simply go away if people stopped listening to that music. <laughs> it is, at turns, hokey and irresponsible, and shifted any responsibility or blame for the zeitgeist under the shoulders of teens who have zero say in how things happen. But the LA Times said it reached ratings heaven, becoming the most watched show of its kind for the entire decade. NBC got 440 phone calls immediately after the broadcast was done, though 311 of them were complaints. This all from a television segment that the NBC news team had no input in at all. It was completely produced by the entertainment division. Many in the music industry, especially in metal genres, had long been being disruptive by highlighting imagery they knew would rattle straight-laced jerks in control of the power structure. There had long been warnings of backmasking, a recording technique that supposedly hid pro-devil statements into recordings revealed if you played the record backwards, which I guess you would do why. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter if you did or not, because supposedly the brain could decode these backward statements and in a semi-hypnotic trance induced by the driving, throbbing bass lines, you would obey any instructions buried in the song. And not just Judas Priest or Ozzy Osbourne, two Ohio evangelicals even thought they heard the phrases, the source is Satan, and someone heard this song for Satan, backmasked in the theme song for the sitcom Mr. Ed, which ran from 1961 to 1966 and was about a talking horse. Of course, if backmasking worked, I'm pretty sure McDonald's and other corporations would be using it. There had been several lawsuits in the 1980s over supposed secret messages, like the events in December 1985 in Sparks, Nevada, just outside Reno, when 18-year-old Ray Belknap and his 20-year-old pal James Vance decided, after a night of heavy drinking and looking at their future prospects, to go to a church parking lot with a shotgun and shoot themselves at point-blank range. Young Belknap died immediately, but Vance lingered for three years before finally dying. Now, Vance's mother could not believe her son had willingly shot himself, so she did some digging and discovered that both boys were fans of the band Judith's Priest. She'd heard tell that some of these songs had hidden backward messages like Let's Be Dead and Do It in their cover version of the Spooky Tooth song Better By You, Better Than Me on their 1978 album Stained Class. And so she sued the band Judas Priest and the record label asking for $6.2 million. The case was dismissed, but the media exposure about the case lingered on. Later in 1988, after Geraldo's shocking expose, Laurel Wilson published a book under the name Lauren Stratford titled Satan's Underground, which is a title right out of that TV special. This book reveals her harrowing experiences growing up, being forced to become impregnated by Satanists to bear babies that could then be sacrificed in arcane rituals and snuff movies. She later said that she had also had experiences from the Kern County sex ring talked about earlier and that her experiences had caused her to develop multiple personalities and also she was a survivor of the Holocaust and a former test subject of the SS officer known as the Angel of Death, Dr. Joseph Mengele, even though she was born in Washington State in 1941 and none of that could possibly be true. 
While spinning these tales, she would say her name was actually Laura Grabowski, and she collected thousands of dollars in donations intended to go to real Holocaust victims. Investigators looking into her claims found she had had a long history of mental illness, frequently made unfounded abuse allegations against people who annoyed her, threatened suicide a lot, and often cut or otherwise hurt herself. You would think with all these cases where people's claims of satanic abuse turned out to be fabrications, either for personal gain or because of mental illness, that the subject would just go lie in the corner and expire. But it was kept alive by evangelicals who sermonized, wrote books, made movies about the evils of evil evildom infiltrating our otherwise flawless society. Law enforcement and the justice system also kept buying into this easy-to-understand narrative that terrible things were done by people for this single reason, Satanism, rather than for a whole bunch of different reasons. In 1994, a training video was made by Lenny McGill Productions called The Law Enforcement Guide to Satanic Cults. Done in a fairly amateurish way, this serious-seeming subject matter is undercut by the cheeseball Casio soundtrack, as well as obviously fake confessions of people like Eric Pryor, who is said to be, quote, a former satanic high priest and who sports an epic mullet while telling cops what to look for when investigating possible Satan-themed crime scenes. And sometimes the satanic panic was purposely put there by the authorities as part of a psyops program, like what happened in Northern Ireland in the early 1970s. When Irish eyes are Satan a reference to the classic 1912 song When Irish Eyes Are Smiling, first heard in the stage show The Isle O Dreams, sung by Chauncey Olcott. In the 2014 book Black Magic and Bogeymen, Fear, Rumor, and Popular Belief in the North of Ireland, 1972-74, British sociologist Richard Jenkins recounts the bizarre tale of just what the Crown had got up to in Belfast and environs near the start of the Troubles. One of his main sources was Captain Colin Wallace, who ran the military's black ops in Northern Ireland. Wallace tells of how he was part of what was then called a psych ops program to spread fear of deep-rooted Satanism in the area. The British could plainly see the cause of all the trouble in the Troubles was sectarian hatred between Catholics and Church of England Protestants. So what could they do in order to maybe bring these two groups together? Well, what did they both hate besides each other? Uh, why, uh, Satan, Satan, of course. of course. And so a plan was hatched at HQ, located in the town of Lisburn, just outside Belfast. The idea was to get people thinking that paramilitary actions and atrocities had unleashed dark forces upon the land, and now they roamed at will, committing evil acts. This would also give a little cover when someone on their side went a little bit too far in the application of force and keep teens and children off the streets at night for fear of being snatched up and sacrificed to the dark gods. And it might convince paramilitary leaders to calm things down a bit, maybe even come to the table to talk instead of adding fuel to the hellfire. So they do things like leave black candles in weird patterns at bombing sites, splash walls with blood, and sometimes when a child had been killed, they would do things to the body post-mortem to make it look like a ritual murder. And they flooded the news media with stories about witchcraft, strange creatures seen in the woods at night, and so on and so forth. 
When 10-year-old Brian McDermott was found dead in a sack in the Lagan River in 1973, the psych ops unit made sure that there were rumors of witchcraft and strange markings on the body. The main target on that score was Ulster groups who were Protestants, who had lately started a campaign of prolonged torture and murder against Catholics and anyone who suggested that the fighting should stop. Like in 1973 when the Ulster Freedom Fighters, the UFF, cut the throat of Patty Wilson and then stabbed him 30 times and his girlfriend Irene Andrews 20 times, as well as hacking off her breasts and then arranging their bodies in a way that suggested it had been part of a weird ritual that they hoped to blame on the evil Pope-following Catholics. They did this because Wilson, although he was a Protestant, thought all Ireland should be united into one country. The UFF leader, John White, who liked to be called Captain Black, was convicted of the crime eventually, but his rationalization was that he and his right-hand man, a guy named Davy Payne but nicknamed the Psychopath, had formed an assassination squad of two and all's fair in love and war. The judge was horrified by the brutality of the murders, calling them, quote, a frenzied attack, a psychotic outburst, and sentenced White to two life sentences. However, he got out in 1992, joined the Ulster Democratic Party, and was an important part of the Northern Ireland peace process, one of only four men who sat down with British PM John Major in 1995 to hammer out a deal. When asked about the killings later, he said they did it to freak out the Catholics and his revenge for two IRA car bombs that had gone off earlier that year, killing six and injuring 33, including some permanent dismemberment. But why did they kill the girlfriend? We didn't know she was Protestant, he said. We just thought she was Catholic, to be honest. That was also part of the problem. This sort of free-for-all of violence with not much needed in the way of justification attracted all sorts of, well, people who like violence. And the sorts of people who are willing to do all kinds of things that the British wanted done were often people who liked doing this sort of thing. Or worse. The case mentioned not long ago about young Brian McDermott found in a bag in the river seemed solved when his 16-year-old brother finally confessed in 1976, but then the brother recanted saying his confession had been coerced. And so young Brian's murder remains technically unsolved today, though there is some evidence that links his death to the Kinkora scandal, which some people refer to as the Ulster Watergate. It turns out there had, in fact, been a pedophile ring operating out of the Kinkora Boys' home in eastern Belfast all through the 1970s. However, many of the men who perpetrated outrages against the young boys were also working as spies for MI5, as well as running weapons and performing various actions and even participating in some of these Satan psych ops being run out of Lisburn. And as such, they were protected from the allegations against them by the British for many, many years. The story is a long and sordid one stretching over decades and eventually leads to investigations into more than 20 orphanages. Because of the link to the Satan scare going on around Belfast between 72 and 74, some started to wonder if, hey, maybe there had been a real satanic cult and maybe that cult reached into the upper echelons of MI5 and possibly even Downing Street itself. So maybe the whole Satan psych ops thing was a bad idea. As Peruvian American rapper Felipe Andres Coronel, better known as Immortal Technique, says, so when the devil wants to dance with you, you better say never, because the dance with the devil might last you forever. Mm -hmm. 
As we've seen, it can be hard to shake off accusations of being affiliated with the Dark One. Of course, Satanism is a real religion and does not practice human sacrifice or ritual abuse and so on, but most people don't know that. And once someone says you've danced with the devil, well, that sort of leaves a stink. As we've seen, the whole 1980s satanic panic was a combination of mentally ill people, hardcore Christian fundamentalists who believe the last days were coming, scammers, a media hungry for audience share, and a law enforcement system that mainly uses straightforward narratives to investigate what are sometimes complicated cases. And it goes on well past the 80s, into the 90s, and the noughties, and even the 20-teens, and some have argued it would eventually morph into Pizzagate and the mega-conspiracy known as QAnon. But I just can't face QAnon right now, so that jumbled bag of discombobulated gobbledygook will have to wait for a future episode. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.